Sci-Fi for Me presents Jason Hunt and Timothy Harvey. This is the H2O Podcast. Welcome to a new episode. Indeed. We've, been, we've been having episodes. <laughs> and uh, and Mirror, Mirror Universe Me is back. This bit. is the reasonable one who you can talk to. <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> you, are, you, are, you are amusing, sir. I know. <laughs> Walked into that one though. <laughs> you walked in, you sat down, you ordered coffee, and you waited for it. I did. I had coffee in my Boba's Bean mug from Star Wars Celebration, which got canceled this year. Well, so a lot of things got canceled this year. We have a whole thing yes. on that. Yes, we do. Um, for those of you who are, well, I guess we should introduce ourselves first. Probably a good idea. All right, why don't you? I'm Timothy Harvey. And I am Jason Hunt. We normally do that the other way around, but we'll shake things up a change little Change is good. That's right. Don't fear change. It's opposite day. <laughs> so maybe I should be sitting there. <laughs> Too late. <laughs> Too late. Um, yeah, it is, uh, it is Monday. It's our, it's our 230th episode. Wow. 230. We've been doing this a little while. <sighs> yeah, well, yeah, we have. Because um, we were doing, we're doing, I was doing a math. And coming up in December, it will be eight years that we have been doing this show. Um, so I got to figure out something special for that. Maybe I don't know what, but <laughs> putting up with you for eight years has got to be got to get I something, know. I'm right? So difficult. <laughs> you get a unicorn onesie, huh? You get a unicorn onesie? Uh, no. <laughs> I, uh, no, uh-uh, uh-uh, no. Okay, so um, in the community tab, for those of you who are uh, on our YouTube page, uh, there is there are tabs across the top, videos, playlists, uh, that kind sure. of thing, and there is a tab marked community, and we have a, a very quick one-question poll there uh, so a very quick question: Are you getting notifications for our channel? Yes or no? And we'd like for you, if you are, if you're uh, so inclined, to go over and answer that question because I still think we're getting shadow banned. I would also recommend that people check. Um, there's been a number of issues with Windows 10 lately, mm. uh, and I, while I don't necessarily haven't seen anything that specifically says it's tied into YouTube. Um, there are a lot of reports of people having email issues through Google ah. uh, with Windows 10. So if you're tied into, so for example, if your if your whatever email system you are using somehow is tied into Windows 10, aside from like say if you have you have Google on your Windows 10 machine and you get your email through Google, but if you somehow have it going through your Windows 10, there's ways to set that up. Yeah. Um, there are people who have reported a lot of issues with that, and it's, a, it's apparently a big um, complaint currently people are having with Microsoft. Now, I don't, haven't personally experienced that because my 
all of my I have my work email and my my personal email don't go through Windows 10. They're right. The system is hosted, but I mean, all uh, Windows 10 is the platform. But I don't set up my email to go through Outlook. Outlook. Well, I have my work email through Outlook, but it's that's a separate thing no. for what you're running into. So the the thing that I have run into with Windows 10 is that it's Windows 10, and I it has its issues. The computer that we normally use is still running Windows 7, and I'm very happy with it. And it, despite the fact. I, well, I see you shaking your head over there, Mrs. Um, I, it's a qualified I'm happy with it because as old as this computer is, oh. it is still performing as well as can be expected. I'm going to say that it's going to completely reboot itself because that's <laughs> what it does. Now it's gotten into the habit. It reboots itself completely at random for no reason and I think what happens is I'm using various different applications and it's trying to do the allocation of resources is such that somehow it's saying no this is too much and I it, and have it a, that issue occasionally with my Mac yeah but that actually is triggered by a bad cable from an external hard drive plugging in. Alright, uh, well, as many as many external hard drives as I've got plugged into this. That so that's, could, that periodically I order new cables. In fact, I just got um, 12 new cables and just to connect, reconnect things again. So. Yeah, because this one, this one, this computer I got in 2007. Mm -hmm. So it is very much on borrowed time. Oh yeah, but Windows, in, in, in fairness to folks who hold on to legacy systems, Windows 7 is a very stable platform. Yeah. And that's one of the issues I think that, that a lot of people have had with, with some of these newer operating systems is that you can remember when something was designed extremely well, and if you got used to it and you got comfortable with it, then mm. the new systems, even with the intent that obviously, you know, the, the marketing is all about, you know, we're making it better for you. Well, that's great, except yeah. Uh, One thing, the, well, the biggest thing that bothers me about Windows 10, because I haven't gotten into the guts of it. Sure. It's the interface. Mm. It's too, it's too Tumblr. It's too much Tumblr. I don't care about the tiles. I don't like the tiles. Just give me a menu. Give me an icon I can click. And let me rearrange the desktop however I want with all of my stuff. And when I click on the start menu, I just want to see my list of programs. Don't give me all of this gobbledygook that millennials love uh, and pastel colors and big widget blocks and who's he what's it. I just start menu just give me the list it's just annoying that I have to look for everything including power I mean you in in Windows 7 you hit start button mm -hmm. and right there on the bottom is the shutdown button and you can arrow over and you can arrow over and then you could say, I want it to sleep, I want it to restart, I want it to shut down. You can't do that in Windows 10. It's annoying. But that's not what we're talking about tonight. We're going to talk about OS 11. While I will not spend as much time on it as you just did, <clears throat> Apple is moving away from Intel-based Macs, and they're moving to their own chipset, mm. which a lot of people are very, very excited about because apparently the new chipset is supposed to be really, really powerful, and there's um, a lot of integration between 
their iPad and iPhone and all these different things. So it's going to, these things are all going to talk to each other even better and be more handy and useful if you happen to be a fan of this stuff, which That's is great. That's the sales pitch. That's the sales pitch. Um, and a lot of folks are saying, the folks who are looking at this, you know, the folks who've had early access and that sort of thing are saying, no, this is, this is really impressive. This is going to be very cool. Um, however, um, this stuff is going to roll out over, I think, next year. Either later this fall or next year, the new fall. the oh, fall. thank you yep. uh, the new the new Macs are going to roll out. But if you happen to have an older Mac with an Intel uh, chipset, and by the way, when I say older Mac, I mean buy one right now. Um, they are immediately going to become a legacy system when the new ones roll out. So what does that do for support? That's the real question because ah. <clears throat> because Mac has said and, and has been leading up to this that we intend to support our operating systems until such time as you know. But what does until such time as mean? Could it be six months? Could it be a year? Could it be five? Mac's track record for supporting older systems when they move, for instance, sample move from the Power PC to the Intel chipset and all that sort of thing. Um, is shorter than people would like. How long did how long's between when Windows 10 rolled out and they stopped supporting Windows 7? Was it something like two years? Something like that. Yeah. Oh. Well, and you look at something like OS, like the uh, the OS systems. OS 10 has been around for a Little long time. time. Yeah. So OS, the new uh, the new uh, system, the new operating system. Um, what is, animal are they going to call it? I'm not sure. I don't recall looking at it because you know what? It's going to be a while before I upgrade my <laughs> soon-to-be not supported for very much longer. It's going to uh, be called Mac. Zebra Sloth. <clears throat> hey, you know what? Because it's, they get creative. It's going to be pretty and shiny, and I'm going to look at it and go, "Wow, mm -hmm. that's a pretty shiny." Um, yeah. And I'm reminded very much of a particular uh, uh, fantasy series, uh, fantasy horror series, um, the the Laundry series by Charles Strauss, where it is made very, very clear. That one of the reasons that uh, iPhones sell as well as they do is because they actually are enchanted devices, and there's a glamour on them, and you are—they <laughs> suck you in. It's—it's—it's—it's it's, it's, it's an actual magical spell designed have, to basically make you buy the thing. I have rolled a D twenty four resistance, uh, obviously. So we should do. Uh, you down. <laughs> we should do a show on gadgets. Mm, yeah. Maybe just because I mean, you look at all of the technology that's out there now, mm -hmm. and. 90% of it is from Star Trek. So, I mean, it's it's well, I guess know. it's worth a look. <laughs> hey, the iPad the iPad is it's exactly a pad. Exactly. Yeah. And uh, and for all the fact that all the fact that I, I like my little tablet which is an Amazon Fire, so mm -hmm. it's not the high-end thing. Um, for, you know, browsing the web and watching movies and that sort of thing. Um, but in terms of in terms of a heavy lifting one, I keep eyeing them going Boy, I sure would like to have one of these really, really cool, uh, you know. And I'm like, but I don't need one. <laughs> I want one. Yeah. I don't need one. Well, we want more viewers, and we're losing them now. So we're 10 minutes into a show without in introducing <laughs> And if they have not paid attention to the show before and see this coming. <laughs> All right, so we're going to introduce our topic, which is? Well, there's an interesting thing that we've got, we're seeing now, um, and that is we've got these really big... Uh, classics of science fiction getting adaptations. Mm -hmm. And they're big idea stories, which, when bringing this sort of thing to the screen, has had a checkered track record. Um, and you can see some, some successful examples of that. Uh, you can see things like The Man in the High Castle, okay? Right. Uh, 
Philip K. Dick is notoriously difficult to adapt, although there have been quite a few adaptations, some of them more successful than others. One of the most successful, of course, being Blade Runner, which is not... It's a qualified success. It it's, was, yes. it's a cult hit. It's a it cult, was not a success not when the it theater, came out no. of the theater. But it's also not really a, an adaptation of Do Androids Dream of Electronic Sheep. It has many story elements of... Yeah. In fact, Man of the High Castle um, has a lot of the story elements of the novel, but it also expands it and takes it in different directions, which has been, to some degree, a really, really uh, well... A, a very good choice for mm -hmm. them because it's been a very successful series. It's gotten a lot of fans. It's highly regarded as being a very quality series, exploring some interesting ideas of alternate realities and the fate and the future and all these different things. Yeah. Which, of course, are things that Philip K. Dick was interested in. So you end up with an adaptation that, while not accurate to the source material, is as much a spiritual adaptation. Um, the Watchmen miniseries, for a lot of people, that they felt it was a much more faithful spiritual adaptation than the movie was. Which even was, though you're talking about the HBO thing, right. even though that wasn't an adaptation so much as it was a sequel. Well, it was a sequel, but it also took it also took a lot of the themes of the graphic novel and pulled them forward 30, 40 years right. into the into quote unquote the modern day from doing some of the same things that he was talking about in the 80s miniseries. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Whereas the, the movie adaptation, while often capturing the visual flair of the series, the comic series, managed to fail to capture a lot of the bigger themes. And big theme science fiction is a challenge because you look at something like we're on, you know, we've got a new adaptation of Dune coming out, which is very exciting. And the, the stills we've seen and the production team and all oh, this is all really, you know, it, it's, it's very cool. Right. However, <laughs> it's a, I mean, there's that book, there's a lot happening in yeah, it's just very the dense. book. It's very Just dense. the first book. And it's, a, it's the beginning of a series. And it's a series that, the, I mean, the, 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 the bigger story that's being told is not capturable in two hours. It's not capturable in ten hours. Did I see, um, I think somewhere online I saw mention of a four-hour cut of David Lynch's version? So, so David, so yeah, um, David Lynch was notoriously unhappy with the cut that went to theaters and um, there was a work print that well it was some no it was it was essentially a work work print after the fact so there was the TV version of Dune which had footage that wasn't in the theaters mm -hmm. cut out some footage added a lot more in then they took it and somebody cut together all of that stuff together plus some other things that they'd found, some deleted scenes, and turned it into this four-hour print. I have a copy of it on DVD. And it is a broader story. It, it, open, it uh, fleshes out some things. And he did not care for it. And so he was, I mean, his... Uh, and, and people have asked him if he'd be willing to do a commentary track, and he's like, no, I don't want anything to do with it. And they were interested in if, you know, people asked him if he'd be, he's, how he feels about the new series, and he's like, I don't care. You know, I made the movie. I did it. I'm done. I'm not interested in going back to it. Um, and when you consider that, 
however you feel about his version of Dune, and there are folks who, I mean, it, it's got its own cult classic status. Oh, there sure. are folks who, I mean, I, I like the movie. In, for a lot of reasons. Well, I mean, Sting's in it. I mean, Sting's in it, and it's well, it, it's another one with an amazing cast. It's yeah. the beginning of uh, Kyle MacLachlan's career. Well, and I think too, when you look at the the kind of casting in that movie, where you have um, you have Kyle MacLachlan, you have Sting, you have uh, is Brian Blessed in that movie? Patrick he is Stewart. not. Patrick Stewart is in it. Um, Ian. Ian McShane? Uh, no, not Ian McShane. Um, in in home? No, I don't no, know. The, the the number of people that were in that film, it's kind of like one of those. It's almost like a Poseidon adventure type, where you get a bunch of a bunch of actors that you recognize from other places, and oh, that's that. Oh, that's that guy. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. You know, and and now of course you've got these. Well, Brad massive Dur- sweeping. Brad Dourif, uh, um, uh, Jose Ferrer, Linda Hunt, Freddie Jones, Richard Jordan. Mm. Uh, by the way, these are all names that if they are probably setting off uh, genre, ding 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 bells. They they are right. These are a lot of folks who. You should inside. not be calling our audience ding bells. Ding ding ding. Uh, Virginia Madsen, um, Kenneth McMillan. Oh, Jack, I forgot she was in it. Jack yeah, she Nance. was one of the Benny Jenner. Uh, Jack Nance, uh, of course, uh, mm-hmm. doing a lot of genre work. Jurgen Prochnow, um, Dean Stockwell, Max von Sydow, um, Sean Young. Big I mean, cast. Big cast. And and Brian Eno, Toto did the score. Um, I mean, it's a it was really quite a, a significant effort in a $42 million budget in 1980. Um, and when you consider, I'm sorry, 1984, uh, when you consider what that translates into, it was a very, very big budget film for the time. Yeah. But it also uh, came up short $10 million in, at the box office. So, and when you look at it, it hits, in many ways, it hits the broad strokes of the novel. Which is what you want a good adaptation to do, except, except. when you get into big idea science fiction where the thing that actually makes it influential in science fiction history or makes it um, have the impact it does on the reader Mm. is the big ideas. And sometimes those big ideas are kind of hard to get on camera. And, uh, of course, the Foundation trailer has just dropped. Yes. And it looks fantastic. I mean, it's big and it's got scale and you're thinking, okay... And I'm looking at it going, this is Prelude to Foundation. Which is fine. It, it, it's, it's excellent. It's got to start somewhere. Well, and the thing is, is that Prelude to Foundation is actually a more action-packed story than the Foundation, which Foundation is actually a collection of short stories. Right. And so, uh, in fact, a lot, of, a lot of what we think of as the Foundation trilogy is made up of store of individual stories that were published separately. Right. They're all they're, at this point. They're all anthologies of right. smaller pieces. So it may it makes sense to do Prelude first because if if you're going to the beginning mm-hmm. of the whole thing, and then also if you're going to do the action-packed stuff, that holds the attention more rather than just the intellectual right type of thing. Which is why we got. Where no man has gone before, instead of the cage as a pilot for Star Trek, right? It's too cerebral. Well, okay, if 
foundation is too cerebral, then okay, well, let's start with Prelude. But what does that say about? Is it Amazon doing it? Who's uh, doing this? Isn't it Apple? Apple. Yep. What does that say? How they think about our audience? Well, but I think is that, that is that a, is that a, a, an indictment of the audience that you can't handle the cerebral stuff? So we're going to get you, give you the the action candy first. And that's a good question because when you look at somebody like Asimov, one of the things that we tend to think of with the big Asimov. Um, stories, the big, you know, the movers and the shakers in his career, the ones that really had giant impact, a lot of them are very cerebral. Mm -hmm. And yet, when we've gotten adaptations of them, you get something like, like uh, iRobot, which is a fun Will Smith movie. But it's not Asimov. It's not Asimov. No. It has a character named after an Asimov character. It has robots, which have three laws, um, but uh, he never actually copyrighted the three laws, so anybody can use them. And he wished, wishes, wished everyone would. But the, the, the issue there is, um, at that, and then right now, it's another thing where this would be an opportunity to HBO or, or Showtime or somebody to, or one of the, one of the networks that's willing to do, that's doing this miniseries kind of formatting right now, which is a lot of them, Netflix, uh, would be to take. I am robot, and adapt each short story in the collection mm. as an episode, and give us a season that we gave could, us the I am robot adaptation. We could do it. I would love to. That'd be great. <laughs> you have to find the right person to play Susan Calvin, though. And the money. All that too. But Susan, oh, casting Susan and Calvin. Who are you going to cast? Someone who's got to be magnetic on the screen, mm. and yet have that detachment that makes her look at robots as being more interesting than humanity. SB the Every Fairy. And sell it. Well, yeah, yeah the, uh, that would be a different <laughs> way to go with it. Um, I, I'm, not saying, I'm not saying no. We're, we're big fans of, of, of that particular fairy, but um, I, I mean, it, would, it would be a real challenge. It would be tough yeah. to cast it. I th I'm not saying it can't be done. Um, but you, well, how, will, how old of an actress would you need? You would need someone who probably could play mid twenties to mid fifties. Tatiana Mislani. Um. Yes, yes. I think she'd be an excellent choice, and I think that it would be really kind of a neat idea because she's very much a chameleon. Oh yeah, uh, and, and very very talented. Um, but I think that you need to. Gosh, just off the top of my head, she, she would be an amazing and wonderful choice, and now I'm having a hard time thinking of anybody else. You're welcome. Uh, because because Susan Calvin is a, is a is a in story in universe, she isn't a particularly um, engaging human being, mm -hmm. and and that's part of who she is. And there's a, there's reasons, story reasons for this. I mean, there's all this is. Uh, this feeds into the, the how she basically brings, you know, intelligent robots to humanity. Um, so yeah, I mean, it's, it would be a tough thing to do, but but not impossible. Um, I think you run you run the risk of simplifying things, but with the case of, of Foundation, a there's two reasons to start at the beginning. One is narrative flow. Sure. Um, when you're writing a novel, it's one thing to sit there and go, okay, now I'll go back and tell the story that sets this up. 
and that people are used to that in terms of being a writer uh, in, in novels. But when it comes to film and TV, how many times have we sat there and gone, I don't need a prequel. Yeah. I do not require. So, um, and, the, and, and the other thing to bear in mind when it comes to something like um, the Foundation series is that it, what starts with Harry Seldon, who's the main character of, of, the, of, the, of the early parts of it, he's actually gone relatively soon in terms of the entire big Foundation story. Well, yeah, because this thing takes place over, what, thousands of years. Yeah, because then basically it jumps forward in time in between each story mm -hmm. and then in between each novel, and then you don't get stuff that happens, follows directly from the previous novel until you get into Foundation and Earth, Foundation's Edge, Foundation and Earth. Um, and then and then it becomes part of the larger... You think tying you think tying together things into a giant, uh, you know, the Marvel Cinematic Universe or the DCEU, uh, Asimov and yeah. Asimov and Clark and, and Heinlein were doing that long before we were seeing it in the movie theaters. Well, and then as as we've pointed out before, is Philip Jose Farmer did it with oh, yeah. every story every universe story. everywhere. Yes, uh, and and. The cool thing is about a lot of these these stories is that you can end up with something that gives you a 2001, mm -hmm. which reads on the page big and epic and sprawling, and you have a movie which, and admittedly it's a different thing because they were written at the same time, mm -hmm. and one is not really, they're not strictly speaking an adaptation either way. Well, unless you count the Sentinel. The Sentinel was certainly was the inspiration for That was for the, 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 the launch point. Yeah, the, but I mean, you, if you look at... Uh, you end, in both cases, you end up with these big, sweeping looks at humanity and, and the universe and our place in it. And then, but then you look at the adaptation of 2010. <clears throat> and both the novel and the movie, which I'm actually a fan of the film. I think it's an excellent science fiction film, but it doesn't have the scale of 2001. And the book doesn't either. It's it's actually it, for all the fact it's set you know from Earth out into the solar system. It's a fairly intimate story. Yeah. Um, and and I think that's that you can you can make it work that way. And it was a fairly easy one to adapt, even because the audience had been primed with two thousand and one. You didn't have to explain the Star Child. You didn't have to explain the Monolith in a way that you know the people who were going to see two thousand and ten had seen 2001. Yeah. And there was enough space in between the two of them that they had shown their kids the movie. <laughs> They'd get that, gotten that second generation interested. Um, and, but then you have something like, yeah, I mean, there's, uh, well, they've been, they've been threatening us with an adaptation of Stranger in a Strange Land for decades. Who's supposed to be... I mean, that, Tom Hanks is going to be in it is for it a sci fi who's supposed to be doing Maybe, that? Maybe, because they were doing Brave New World. They're not doing Brave New World anymore. Right, that's over at Amazon. I think it might I be Amazon. Know. Yeah, because Alden Ehrenreich is in that. Yeah, um, and that's actually supposed to come out like in a month. I think so. And no, it's going to be on. Wait. We um, got the screen. Didn't we get the thing for is it, it? We we had something on that. Let me look that up because now I'm wondering if it may be HBO part of the HBO Max launch. Oh, maybe. Let me look. But Brave it's, is with a V, not a C. 
Yeah, I do that too. <clears throat> uh, you know, and and even then, Brave New World has been has been a play. It's been it's been audio adaptations. There've been uh, there was a, an audio play version, I believe. Um, and we, you know, if you're if you're familiar with Brave New World at all, um, you may be more familiar with the fact that it's been Peacock. Oh, okay. It's been banned. It's been a subject of a lot of discussion about uh, comparisons to, to 1984, mm-hmm. um, and you know, just a lot of the uh, a kind a, a kind of dystopian future, uh, a different one than 84, 1984, but at the same time, still in that same vein of, uh, you know, if we go down such and such path, right? This is the end result, and it's the same. I mean, you know, uh, Fahrenheit. 451 takes a, you a different way, uh, but it also kind of gets um, in that sort of idea of, of a route that will lead to such and such results. Um, I have I have said is, in a number of places that we are right now living at the intersection of 1984, Animal Farm, Brave New World, and Fahrenheit 451. I'm going to revise that. I think at the moment, and I don't know, did I, did I, I think I may have already said this, that we're living in the prequel to Demolition Man. Yeah. Okay. All right. Then never mind. I won't, I won't repeat my joke. Um, although. It's not really funny. Yeah. I I don't, I don't, uh, there's, there's a few things that get in the way of it being the prequel to Demolition Man. Nobody can still explain the shells. (laughs) Until well, and, until shell technology is developed, we cannot. Th- I know, but we've already had runs on toilet paper. I mean, there's the beginning of it. Yeah, but, somebody's okay, starting but, to think. Okay, we well, what not, happens if we run out? What do we do? Well, that they, seed's been planted. Based on Wesley Snipes' legal issues, I think we're good. He's not got you know. <laughs> uh, but yeah, it's. Uh, <laughs> remember, remember back when the idea of a Sylvester Stallone film starring Sandra Bullock. Made you sit there and go, okay. And now I'd just be like, really? <laughs> Again? How'd that work out? Yeah. Tolfer in the chat says, at least we're not living in Battlestar Galactica yet. As far as uh, maybe uh, well, uh, the, the occupation of the Cylons. I tell you what, though. I, I the, more, the more technology rolls along, and I think that when I was a kid, and probably through my middle 20s, uh, and it's been steadily falling ever since, the idea... It was the Terminator movies that did it to me. Mm. The idea that the 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 AIs are going to rise up and take over the world—it's uh, coming. It's not. You yeah. see, you you saw this the news story that we ran on Saturday about the robot who's now the lead character, the lead actor in that seventy-four million dollar movie. It's it it doesn't matter. AIs AIs are not going to take over the world for two reasons. If you've ever used Google Maps, you know. <laughs> That they are not smart enough to find things. That's they're true. they're useful that to a true. point, but I'm telling you, the the end result of the great AI uprising will be all the AIs standing in the middle of a field in Western Kansas, going, <laughs> "This is where the humans are supposed to be." <laughs> so there's that issue, there and the second and the second issue is is that it still comes down to garbage in, garbage out. Yeah, and until the the human mind is an interesting wetware system. I mean, it's, you know, and, and until we can find a way to duplicate 
that, I mean, uh, no, no question, limited AI is already here. And, and, limited, and, and limited AI is gonna be a great tool for us. But we've also seen the issue with facial recognition, that it's, you know, here's a learning system that's designed. And every time someone sits there and goes, we have all this great, yeah, and, and someone else sits there and goes, yeah, let me show you how, you, how it's already broken, <laughs> how you've already set it up to, that you Let this AI write a script after studying all of these scripts. Yes, and the thing no, is, is that you might end up with it. You might end up with a fully functioning script. You know, there's a plot arc and character development and dialogue and things like that. Yeah, but, but it's, it's it's monkeys on a typewriter. Ultimately, it, it is, and I think that that's something that we need to bear in mind is that is that there's certainly a question that we can be concerned. And some of these big science fiction ideas talk about this sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Is that it's it's it, in fact it's it's the backstory. To Dune, even if you leave aside the prequels that were written that were not Frank Herbert, um, and his son was involved, so right, I mean, there's a right. legacy there. But if you, you know, the Butlerian Jihad was mentioned in passing in the novel. Now, the Dune Encyclopedia, which is not quote unquote canon, but a lot of people, a lot of Dune fans, when it was in print, because it's well long out of print, um, maintained that it should be canon expanded what the Butlerian Jihad was, and that was the war against the machines. Mm. And But the issue that you end up with, with the idea of this, it's a, it's a legitimate fear. It's the same fear we have of being replaced by the next generation of people, that, you know, or, or a different culture coming in and replacing us. It's, 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 a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a fear writ large. Right. And it's also a fear of our technology being used against us. And that's something that's been good. That's been, <laughs> since the first guy who came up with the wheel had the, had somebody else build a wheel. <laughs> it's like, oh no, my technology is being used against me. And it's never stopped. Yeah, um, I have I, I have a, a, a message here from the control room. Mrs. Boss admitting that she has not seen Demolition Man. Am, am I reading that right? So the, impor oh, the important things you need to know about Demolition Man is one... <clears throat> it's a reminder that Sylvester Stallone can be very, very funny. Yeah. Two, it's a reminder that there was a time when Wesley Snipe was a huge actor. <laughs> and th and he was. I mean, and he, his biggest problem was that he ran into legal issues that derailed his career. Because, you know, here's the thing, folks. Pay your taxes. Yeah. Um, it will come back and bite you. It was also a... It's also an interesting time capsule for the first part of Dennis Leary's career. Because the character he plays in Demolition Man is the dystopian version of the character he was playing on MTV commercials. Which is a variation... That's cynic. The variation yeah. of the character that uh, he... The version of himself that he played <clears throat> in his original concert album, No Cure for Cancer. Mm which is a uh, fantastic album. If you haven't heard it, and you don't mind a lot of swearing, because um, <laughs> it's really funny, um, is a fascinating kind of story, brief background here. He and his wife were in uh, Scotland for the Edinburgh Festival, for the Edinburgh Fringe Festival, the, big, the biggest Fringe Festival. It's a month, month long. It's, it's everything expanded from the Edinburgh Festival. We have a Fringe Festival here in KC right. and everywhere else. Um, and they were pregnant. His wife was pregnant. And suddenly... Their child was born prematurely, so they couldn't leave, mm. and so he's stuck there, and so he writes this show, 
And um, it's a hit at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival. And it turns into this concert thing. And it's really, really funny. And it's really cynical. <laughs> and this turned into this thing where he was on MTV. But he, the character, he, in, if, if uh, Rescue Me was a lot of people, more, more people know him from Rescue Me than they know him from his stand-up career. Yeah. Huge hit, of course, a, a show about firefighters. But the character he plays in Demolition Man is basically that exact character. Um, and it's a it's a it's a fun bit too. It's a fun bit. Yeah. And the, the film is the film itself is very funny, and it's a strange look at the future, because if you consider that a lot of people very rarely do we get. I mean, Idiocracy was one. Uh, you don't get that, and even that was kind of grim in its own way. You don't get a lot of visions of a dystopian future, quote unquote, that is played for laughs. Right. And and Demolition Man in is is as much as it is an action film. Uh, it's a comedy, mm. and I mean, even Wesley Snipes playing a completely murderous character is really funny. Well, and I think his over-the-top performance yeah. is what is what sells that. He's kind of a he's he's kind of playing a version of the Joker. Kind of, I would uh, think so. Yeah, yeah, sort of a yeah. I, I'd say, Agent I'd say, chaos. all right, yeah. Uh, I'm going to interrupt myself real quick and and uh, uh, tell our engineer over there, go ahead and click that sound icon on the tab so we don't get interrupted by the big beep when the clock runs down no. again this week. <laughs> Are you sure? Because uh, I, didn't, I didn't set that right. Um, but, but I, no, go ahead. I was going to say, I was going to circle back around to foundation. Um, if going back to the original... The, the original point of the story. So for those of you who have not read Foundation, of course we always find folks who've heard about it but haven't mm -hmm. read it. I they, haven't read it yet. I still, I, it's, on my, it's on my shelf. It's on the list. So the basic idea for Foundation, the big broad strokes, is that there's a, uh, a man called Harry Seldon who basically he looks at, it, it's basically a story of math and statistics. Where he, he basically comes up with a formula that says, uh, when you look at enough people, individual, you cannot predict individuals. Individuals are chaotic. They make decisions on their own. They do whatever they want. But when you get to a certain number of people, when you get to a certain population mass, mm -hmm. you can start predicting the behavior of populations. And this is the far future where there's a galactic empire. There are billions and trillions. And I mean, there's, it's the, the population numbers are, are uh, gigantic. And so he can sit there and go, aha. You know, he develops this thing called psychohistory, which is this, you know, you look at the, the behavior of these people and you can, to a degree, predict the future. And you see that line in the trailer where he says, you know, they think you can predict their, their they think other people think that I can predict the future. Mm -hmm. And to a degree, he can. He can look at the future and say, look at look the trends and how these these massive groups of people behave, and say, this is what is likely to happen. And what he sees is the fall of the empire. And he sees tens of thousands of years of chaos and war falling out of the fall of the empire. And there's no way to avoid it. It's he can't stop it. It's going to happen. All he can hope to do, and you get to go again. This reference is, is film. Is, this is referenced in the trailer as well. Is shorten the length of time instead of it being tens of, th of thousands of years, five thousand years. 
bring bring it down you know everybody alive now is going to be dead you're not going to be able to say it you but you can you can shorten the dark age that is coming right and this of course is not a popular viewpoint because a nobody wants to hear that their empire is about to fall and you see the emperor in the um, in, in the trailers as well Lee Pace playing the emperor uh, and I mean, it's a big idea story. And then, of course, what happens is that very quickly in the Foundation storyline, we are at the point where, spoiler alert for a 60, 70-year-old story at this point, um, the Empire has fallen, and they're in the Ages of Chaos. And then it's the Age of Recovery. And then all these different things as you go forward. But what it looks like they're doing with the, with the series is they're going back to Prelude to Foundation, which shows you... Because by the time Foundation rolls around, Harry Seldon has established this. This is... Things are already in motion. Right. Prelude goes back to the point where he's discovering this, where he's becoming politically dangerous to the Emperor, where he's, you know, you know worried about being arrested. This is all stuff that took place in Prelude to Foundation. So in terms of setting up your story narratively and how the why this i'm cautiously optimistic just from the trailer alone is a it looks fantastic great that's right it's a great looking cast and some fantastic choices um but it gives you the backstory that even asimov went back and filled in and even that was uh highly regarded it wasn't like mm -hmm. Well, no one. No, he got, he actually gave important backstory. He explained who right. he was and, and how he came up with things, and his also the the nature of his life that you don't get the depth of in the foundation, the original foundation book uh, and stories. So, um, in this particular case, I'm less worried about them going. You know, I've come to spoon spoon feed you. You know, the information that I can't trust you to. So, so you got foundation coming from Apple. You have Dune in the theaters. Yeah. We have Brave New World coming to Peacock. Uh, they, they keep promising us a Fahrenheit 451, but... Well, there was that one with Michael B. Jordan, and it came out, and it didn't do very well, and nobody watched it, and nobody was interested in it, and it died a quick death. I, yeah, and I, I, not having seen it, I can't speak to whether or not it was a good adaptation or not. Yeah, I didn't see it either. And and I feel part of me feels bad about that because again it looked like it had a great cast, uh, and but at the same time, I kind of wonder with Bradbury, as much as I love the book, uh, and I love a lot of Bradbury's uh, stories, one of the things that that Bradbury really is is he's a fantasist. Mm. And he tells, in many ways, stories that are... So I really want, as much as I love Jason Robards and Jonathan Price in Something Wicked This Way Comes, it is an adequate, but not particularly inspired adaptation. Right. Of, of... Well, you see, we're getting an adaptation of The Halloween Tree. Yeah. Coming. That, that, that'll, that'll be different. Yeah. I, 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 I <clears throat> Bradbury almost feels like, I, I almost want to get like a prestige, give me like, a, um, uh, you know, do like, uh, uh, Amazon doing Good Omens. 
you know, that kind of prestige six mm -hmm. episode, give me a, you know, something like that. Yeah. Where you can sort of lean into the weirder parts of Bradbury's writing and that sort of his ability to sort of conjure a, a nostalgia for a time that may not even have existed. There's something he does that where he can basically make you feel, make you feel like you, you're missing something that you personally never experienced. Right. Do you think at some point? That's art. Do you think at some point we get a new Martian Chronicles? So, I would say we should. Um, I think that for if you if you are old enough to have watched the Martian Chronicles. Nineteen. Oh, uh, it was eighty something. Yeah, eighty four, eighty three, eighty four. Early eighties. Like um, it's it's got a really God, visually. It's such a product of its time. <laughs> it's like watching old Battlestar Galactica. It's like I can tell you when this was made, <laughs> um, or or the Bionic Man. Or... But it was very ambitious. Oh, it was very, very ambitious. It's very ambitious. And and I think, but I think that it also didn't. I don't know if audiences were really ready for the grimness. Mm. The Martian Chronicles is a there's there's hope in the stories, but it's an overarching hope that when you when you read the last story, there's a sense of hope. But there's a lot of build. Yeah, it takes you a while to get there. Because there's there I mean there the the fall of the House of Usher. Uh, mm. where basically, I mean, it's, it's a horror movie. It's a straight up, you know, you guys think Saw went there. <laughs> Bradbury went there in the 1950s, 60s, when, yeah. when some of those stories yeah. were written. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's a lot there. Um, there's, you know, the Silver Hornets, um, there's a, well, I mean, it was, it was called the Silver Hornets in, in the UK. The whole collection was, um, but it was, yeah. It's a there's a lot of darkness to it. I think that I think that audiences now would be prepared to sit there and have like a, you know, thirteen episode again again just adapt each story as a full episode. Sure. Um, but I mean, we've been primed for some of this stuff. You have a series like Westworld, which takes it goes bigger with the ideas than the original novel did, you know, um, and certainly the original movie. Um, you, how, where it, where it's taken them is, you know, your mileage may vary depending on your fandom, uh, how you feel about it. Um, I think the first season was amazing. The second season was interesting. And the third <laughs> season, it's like, okay, <clears throat> but what are you trying to do here is what um, I want to know. Um, I'm, I'm looking over at, at one of our shelves. It's got mm. all of the stuff and I'm, and I'm yeah. eyeballing the Ben Bova series. Because oh. there are a number of them there, and I'm thinking that would be an interesting series to adapt. Uh, yeah. I mean, the Honor Harrington stories from David Weber. That I would love to see that. I don't think that's going to happen because I think it's too big. But these Ben Bova stories. Mm, may, but, eh. but 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 you know, we've had we've had the, and may, maybe you need the British to do it because they did the Sharp series. Maybe. Uh, you know, we've had various adaptations of the Horatio Hornblower. Uh, and, and frankly, you know, yeah, but the thing is, <clears throat> you need a the British biggest, director to do it. 
Well, yeah, you've got to you've got to have American budget. Right person to do it. Give, give me give me a Netflix or HBO budget, and and I could see on Basilisk Station the first Honor mm-hmm. Harrington story, directed by Kenneth Branagh. Maybe the problem with the Honor Harrington stuff, and this is something that they've talked about because there's actually been companies that have tried to do this. The problem that you're going to have with it are the combat scenes because all of the missiles are ballistic. There's no lasers, pew pew torpedoes or anything like that. Um, They're missiles. Yeah, but I think that if you look at if you look at something like The Expanse, where the physics is close to reality, science fiction gets mm-hmm. to be to to really be, you know, to really pay attention to how physics affects things. You look at the battle scenes in that, and it's, we've fired the thing, and now we wait, because yeah. it's three miles away from us. And well, and in this, in this particular case, it's like, you, you know, you, they fire the missiles, and we have impact in 19 minutes. I mean, right. you, yeah, can't, yeah. you can't do... You can't do this in real time. You're, you're, there's no way. So no, you're going to have to cheat somehow. Well, and they and to some degree they do that in uh, uh, the Expanse is where they will show you. In fact, the the primary weapon system of uh, their ship in the Expanse is a railgun. Oh, okay. And so it's you know, and and it's basically it's turned this little, relatively small ship, which is a military vessel anyway. Um, into like you know this incredible fighting ship because they sit there and go aha I've got a giant stick of metal that I'm gonna put you know because because the the physics works in the favor of this giant stick of metal mm-hmm. um, as a weapon so I think you can, I think you can do it I think that honestly the the trick is is that we've reached the point now that I think we've got audiences who are primed for the kind of stories that give you the depth because you look at the honor harrington books and if you're if you treat the characters with the depth that you should to adapt it you're looking at a season long story at least to give your to give your you know to give your characters the development so that you care about the way they do and you understand the relationships between yeah. in because there's politics in the Harrington books, and it's because of the politics of government and the politics of how these why there why there's a conflict. I could see I could see on basilisk on basilisk station being thirteen episodes. Uh, you get into, well, I think I think you would get into the same the the later books the same problem you get you get into with the expanse is that there are times when they have made decisions and it's worked out pretty well so far where they have condensed. Mm-hmm. A book and a half into one season, <clears throat> and they've done it because they've done it because the story actually lined up that you could do that. Yeah, but there's times when you, but you'd have you'd want you'd have to look at expanding things yeah. beyond that. There is there is one I can think of right right off the top of my head. There is one uh, <clears throat> storm from the shadows. There's a there's a there's an overlap mm. in in the stories because one of them is Honor Harrington story. The other one follows her friend Michelle. Ah, sure. And apparently, basically, this is going on at the same time. Oh, okay. So you could right. maybe 
line up a few and take scenes from this one and put it in that one. Mm -hmm. But for the most part, they're they're chronological. They're one right after the other. Uh, and then, of course, you have the Torch series, and then you have you know the other. So there's a real there, there's a lot to to pack in. And then, of course, you've got the Enders stories from Orson Scott Card. Yes, and unfortunately, you have an audience reaction or lack of reaction to what was ultimately a pretty faithful adaptation in terms of the film for Ender's Game. For yeah. Ender's Game, I as 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 far as the the only thing they significantly changed, and there's a reason for it, uh, was the age of the children. Sure. Because in the books, they're younger than they are. Yeah, I think Ender's what ten. Uh, yeah, eight, eight or you, nine, ten. There. There's a in context, in terms of the story, there's a reason they're yet that young. However, A, you look at the practicality of having actors who are that young and, and being good actors. and mm -hmm. They, they yeah. happen, but they're rare. Yeah. And so you get into the teenage years so you can actually have the actors who can carry the heavy lifting. Um, so that's not a t terribly big deal. It was a fairly faithful adaptation. I think that it actually ended up being... And even with even with when you consider... There, there was a backlash because of people not... not being fans of, of Orson Scott Card uh, as a person or as his politics. And that, sort of, that, that was a factor. It wasn't enough of a factor. It was a larger audience just not being interested. Uh, and I think some of that might have been... Um, it wasn't the greatest ad campaign. It wasn't a terrible ad campaign. But it was also a certain amount of... It wasn't... It wasn't a unique ad campaign to really sell the fact that this is why you haven't seen this story before. Yeah, it was too much. It was well, the ad campaign was too generic. It's like uh, it's like the the trailers for John Carter. Mm, you know, that that whole marketing campaign for John Carter was. I don't want to say it was deliberately set up so that the movie would fail, but we do have that aspect of it. Um, well, yeah, it, and maybe that's maybe that's something else that we can look at at some point is trailers that didn't deliver. You know, as far as you have this really good film, mm -hmm. and you have this lousy marketing campaign that kills this really good film, and nobody went and saw it because the trailers didn't get them interested in it. Right. So there's a British comedy series called News of the Week. And they have a segment called uh, Unlikely Film Trailers. Mm. And so it's just, you know, things like The Boy Who Cried Wolf 3, This Time We Mean It. You know, that sort of thing. Um, or, and, and one of the, one of, there's a, an Irish comedian named Ed Byrne that's, that got up and said, you know, um, Tom Cruise, Explosion, A Flash of Boob. That'll do you, <laughs> you know, and that's because to some degree, this is how we look at trailers. Is that the idea is is that it's supposed to get you excited and get you into seats, right? That's the theory. That's right? the theory. But then you look at something like, say, when um, uh, the first of the Star Wars sequels came out. Remember, remember how that trailer was so crafted mm -hmm. so well. Mm -hmm. It reached out, and if you were of a certain age, if you were if you were a kid in the seventies, yeah. it reached out and it grabbed hold of your heartstrings and it went pluck. Yep. And you went boom. I, and you're tearing up. And I remember when when that first came out. I I deliberately avoided seeing it online. Yeah. Before I could see it in the theaters, we went and saw Big Hero Six for a second time. 
just to see the trailer. Not to say you shouldn't see Big Hero 6 more yeah, than no, once. No, it's, it's a good, good movie. It's a, it's a good movie. But we get there, and James was like, why are we here? We've already seen this movie. Why are we... Wait a minute. Yeah. You know, and the light just kind of went ping. Right, so that's an example of, of how it really works well. Yeah. Um, it plays to all the things that you... Uh, it, play, it plays to the emotional bits. It plays to your knowledge of the original films. It, it connects things in a visual way and in an emotional way. And you have something, and I know that somebody, someone listening or watching this episode is going, God, John Carter again, because we've talked about it a few times. <laughs> but the, the, the critical thing to remember about the John Carter trailers is what it ev completely ignored, which is the history and the context yeah. of why John Carter should have been important to a viewer. <clears throat> uh, because when you look at the wider audiences, it didn't have the reach. You know, you you people were must, much more likely to know the other famous character from the same author, yeah. Tarzan. Tarzan. Okay, so you, but if you recognize Tarzan and you don't recognize John Carter, well, it's because Tarzan had a bunch of different movies and a TV show, and you know, it's a couple, several TV shows. Well, and that speaks to the to the broader uh, idea here because we're talking about these grand, sweeping, epic stories. The Barsoom novels, it's not just John Carter. It's, right, sure. You know, or, or Princess of Mars, rather. Mm -hmm. uh, it's, you know, you've got, what, eight? Five, the, first like five, yeah. the first five stories are now in public domain. I can't remember how many are past that. Well, but and, and you have all of this wealth of story material mm -hmm. in the Barsoom series, and nobody's ever going to be able to experience it because that first movie didn't do what it was supposed to. Uh, yeah, and if you can, you can currently find um, there's been various adaptations in comic book form. There's currently, I want to say it's Dynamite. Dynamite. Dynamite Dynamite's yeah. running uh, uh, Deja Thoris, mm -hmm. Princess of Mars series, uh, and there have been various other, you know, uh, John Carter series as well. DC, Marvel did one, I think, in the I think 70s, Marvel. 70s, early 80s. Um, I don't think it lasted very long. But Dynamite has the costuming a little bit closer to what's described in the books. Right. Well, that's the other thing, is that faithful, a faithful adaptation of the costumes in the books yeah, is not going to get the rating you want to get not the kids from in. Disney. Not from Disney. Yeah. Um, although, well, but we're talking about getting a Black Hole reboot, and when you consider that the, the violence level of, of Disney's, yeah. Disney's the Black Hole, in many ways, Disney's the Black Hole is Disney's first rated R movie. It wasn't rated R in theaters, mm -hmm. but if you make that movie now, yeah, it's a rated R film, and and that's fine. Honestly, it, it's just somehow Disney and Splatterpunk. Given how things are going these days, it's it it works better now than it did with the Black. Well, Hole it was unex out. it was unexpected because certainly people are not expecting a Disney science fiction film to have swearing, mm. and there was swearing in the film. And there's a particularly brutal murder in the middle of, tail end of that film, not the middle of the film. But it's, and it's shocking for when it happens. I mean, it's, it's a, uh, especially when you've had sort of like bumbling comedic robot characters over here. And now here's a disembowelment. It's like, wait a minute. <laughs> but you know, uh, we, uh, um, getting the idea of, of some of these big, if this okay, so if this stuff happens, if we actually get these, if we if we get a, oh, and I've got my fingers so crossed so hard for Dune because right. I really want to get them up through at least God Emperor, because unfortunately once you get once you get beyond God Emperor, you do another God between 
between Children of Dune and God Emperor is a significant time jump. Beyond God Emperor, you get into a, not only another significant time jump, but you also get into an arc that Herbert was not able to complete when he died. Right. And there is a division between Dune fans, between the, Her the Frank Herbert works and everything else that was written. Uh, and and if you enjoyed the you enjoyed the, uh, the if you enjoy okay so it didn't uh... if you if you enjoy the <laughs> Brian Herbert uh, books that that are you know Brian Herbert and Kevin Anderson Kevin Anderson yeah uh, if you enjoy those books that's fine but there are there are Dune fans who are like Frank Herbert didn't write it. We're done. You know, Although a, they're going off of his notes, and well, and, the, so and, and, and that's and where that nebulous and the debate comes: how yeah. detailed were the notes, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. <clears throat> and, and that's not uh, a question you're going to get answered. Yeah. But if you just do the first four books, you have a complete story. Uh, and and Herbert saw that there was more he could tell with the story, so he took more books. But if you just do those four books, the problem is that those four books, there's a ton of yeah. of big ideas in there. But wouldn't it be nice um, if, you know, uh, you can get some of these ones that really never quite got a studio to actually do them. Morgan Freeman, for the longest oh, time. yes. Uh, has, he's, I think he still wants to do it, doesn't well, he? Well, he does. And does he still have the rights? I, that's a very, very good question. Um, Arthur C. Clarke. Uh, of course, a lot of big ideas from Arthur C. Clarke. Yeah. Um, had, in fact, it's not the only one I want to. Um, Arthur C. Clarke had a number of them. I think Fountains of Paradise would also be a good one. But um, the Rendezvous with Rama series is epic space exploration series. Mm hmm. The first book has very little conflict in it. Later books in the series, quite a bit of conflict. But the first book is much more a exploring an alien artifact. It's about the journey of discovery. It's about the big ideas. Sure. And that's been an issue for some studios in trying to crack this in terms of the story. It's like, well, where's the conflict? It's like, okay. It's the sense well, of adventure. It's, it's <laughs> Star Trek the motion picture. I mean, there's not a whole lot of conflict there until you get to the very end. And even then, it's not conflict in your traditional man versus man, man well, versus even, machine. Well, but even you look at, if you yeah. look at that at least has a, a threat. Rendezvous with Rama doesn't necessarily even have a threat. They have a limited amount of time to explore this thing before it leaves the solar system again. Right. So they're on a, their threat is the timetable. It's the amount of time they can spend there. So it's a and, and and on the page it works incredibly well, and in terms of the, I think the struggle has been getting someone to a studio to commit to the fact that there are no ray guns, the aliens are absent. Mm. Spoiler alert! Um, and it's about exploring this gigantic space that is very not human. Christopher Nolan might be able to crack it. You know, maybe I, I've always. Yeah. I really want to see Tenet for the very simple fact that he's based on the trailer alone, which it sounds like listening to some of, some of the actors have said um, they were quite confused 
by the script, <laughs> which I, I don't know might actually be really cool because yeah. time travel. It's clearly a time travel influenced, uh, or time travel is a, is an aspect of it, even on a limited basis, rolling back time a few seconds and forth and that sort of thing. Um, but time travel should be a mess. Oh yeah, it should be confusing, and it lo it sounds like he's leaning heavily into because I get to the end of the trailer, and it's like, wait a minute, if we do all these things, you know. Mm. Um, I have to wonder because you're talking about, you know, Dune being a bigger a bigger thing, and and all of these ideas with the bigger bigger ideas, bigger movies, grand sweeping stories, and whatnot. It it brings to mind two questions. One, will the studios take enough of a risk? to make the movies long enough that you can tell these stories. You know, because for every Dances with Wolves, we've got a Rise of Skywalker where, you know, it's 40 minutes too short mm. to, to get it all in there. And then it's all just like, go, 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 go. Right. Mm -hmm. So will, will the studios commit to making these longer stories? And then now that, you know, it's at some point one of these days when we come out of the the quarantine and the movie theaters open up again is there a possibility could we maybe see theaters go back to longer runs before going to to digital home home video stuff can we see dune in the theater for 3 months or four months, depending on uh, it's doing well, it's tracking well. Let's keep it in there instead of churning everything out in three weeks, and it's and it's off to the next thing. Well, when you consider that um, you are looking at a film which is really not meant to be a complete, it's not the book in total. It's they're splitting the book into two parts. Yeah. Which is good, because even even let's say it's clocking in at three hours. Um, that's still not half the book. That's still not half the book. <laughs> and there are parts of the book you can trim away. There's there's no question because there's a lot of there's a lot of philosophy and politics, and they're talking about doing a TV series on the Benedict 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 Benedict, yeah. where so some of that stuff can actually move into the TV series. So as long as you're but you're you're taking a risk. Okay, when you do it, when you're playing on a TV series and a two a movie that's designed to be split in half, mm. you know the first half, the first film has got to grab you. Yeah, yeah, because if it doesn't, your your second one is dead. Yeah, the second one's dead, and the TV series is dead too. So you, so I mean, I'm, on the one hand, they're very, they're apparently very confident in what they've got here, which is great. Which is for fans is is a is a potential good sign. Oscar Isaac has done an interview and at some point in the course of that interview said that he's seen bits and pieces of the cut mm -hmm. and he says it's amazing so how much of that is he's part of the project he's got to sell it how much of it is he's honestly amazed but he yeah he's he's been very very open about the fact he's a giant fan of the novel so yeah um, but there's there's so many things to deal with i mean the you can you can give some of the backstory to the Bene Gesserit and and certainly some of the backstory of the the Bene Gesserit on Dune itself, mm -hmm. which is explored a little bit in the book and some in the future books, uh, the books the sequels. Uh, 
you know, where you can actually explore this. But there's, I mean, Dune is a, Dune is a po political novel. It's an ecological novel. It's an adventure novel. It's a novel about the power of the power of faith and the ability of people to manipulate that. It's a power of of its question of uh, do we choose our destiny? Do we have our destiny thrust upon it? Um, it's economics. Uh, it's the the pros the pros and cons of drug addiction. Yeah. Um, there's a lot going on in that novel um, that you need the space to breathe. So let's say six hours, uh, a TV series, and I mean, I'd love I'd love to have a Dune franchise because I want someone to give me, um, spoiler alert for God Emperor of Dune, a forty foot long, half human, half sandworm hybrid. Who rules the universe <laughs> and isn't even the main character? Yeah, and I mean, yeah, it's funny. Telfer says modern movies are plenty long. I my my philosophy has always been when it comes to the length of of films, or you you get into serialized storytelling or mm -hmm. whatever. Um, it should be as long as it needs to be, and there are not enough studios and I, I I lump in television and film in mm. all of that there are not enough studios who are willing to commit to that we, it has to be two hours so we can screen it 6,000 times you right. know that kind of thing we, it has to be this window right. so we can get X number of screenings in a day on each screen and in, in the theaters and what because it's all math right mm -hmm. and that's not how you should do it I think the movie, whatever the story ends up being, mm -hmm. in order to be the story and tell it well and to tell it, you know, fully, you know, deleted scenes are, are going to happen no matter what. Sure. But in order to tell the, tell the story adequately, it needs to be as long as it needs to be. Well, I think that, that we've gotten, we're seeing some of that in terms of what we're getting, this long-form prestige storytelling. Mm -hmm. you, know, you get something like... Uh, you know, Good Omens or Watchmen. Um, I want I want a prestige version of V for Vendetta. I want you to go. I want them to go back to the original 1980s source material comic book, and give me an episode by episode adaptation because I think it would blow people away. What about League of Extraordinary Gentlemen? The biggest problem I would have with that is that it is such a visually dense series. There's so much happening on the panel. And I think, and and part of what makes that series work is, first of all, you can take the surface level of story, and even go back another level. Mm. I think, and probably give yourself a, um, I mean, Penny Dreadful, Penny Dreadful proved it could be done, um, yeah. and and just lean into it that way. But you're gonna miss out. There's so there is so much British pop culture of the 1800s. Because it's Alan Moore who dives into that stuff and goes, I will learn all the things. It's it's so dense. And it's such a... You you can find annotations for the every issue of League of Extraordinary Gentlemen online. And they are gigantic. Yeah. It's like, this figure in the window on panel three was used to advertise baking soda from night from 1853 to 1872. See, and how and much of that how much of that is Alan Moore and how much of that is Dave Gibbons? Yeah, well, it, 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 it's it. it's the yeah. art, it's the art uh, that basically just leans into this stuff and has this 
I mean, it's it, but it's working together in a way that that I think is really hard to capture. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, you could make a much better adaptation than we got of the movie that yeah. goes out because the movie, the movie was an example of a studio going, we don't understand the material. We don't understand why this is a big deal. <clears throat> See, and that's the risk you run with any of the big sweeping epic ideas yeah. movies because you're going to get those 30-something knotheads with the, with the man buns who don't get it. Having, had, having had say, long hair, but never having had a mad bun. Let's be careful now. <laughs> it, well, it, they're they're going to look at this and they're going to think, well, like like you said with Rendezvous with Rama, where are the ray guns? Right. You know, where's the pew pew action like we've got over? We want another Marvel mm -hmm. franchise. You know, we want the 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 muckety mucks to do the yuck yucks and give us the jokes and the guns and the girls and okay. And a lot of these stories don't do that. Even, you know, they're, they're grand ideas. I mean, you look at Brave New World mm -hmm. or, or uh, 1984. 1984 doesn't have a lot of action. You weren't, well, 1984, 1984 and Brave New World run the same risk of, of Brazil. Because basically Brazil is 1984 and mm. Brave New World filtered through the mind. Yeah. Uh, and... Terry Gilliam is got a mind that has all kinds of things going on there. Let me let me pair up a couple of names for you. Sure. And get your reaction. 1984 and David Cronenberg. I'd love it. All right. I'm, it would be nightmare fuel all the way down. <laughs> you would you would walk out you would walk out of that theater with your eyes wide and you'd be shaking a little bit <laughs> and you'd be looking around thinking uh -huh. they're gonna come for me at any time and you're, you'd be looking at you'd be looking at words to go. Do I know what that really means? Yeah. Is that where's the newspeak? It would it would because he oh. would he would definitely. Um, Especially David, definitely his middle period where he was, he was in that point where he was, it was moving from the more body horror things into the more creepy, just, mm -hmm. you know, uh, but oh yeah, give me, you know, or, or give me Dave, give me Mulholland, uh, uh, drive Lynch and, and then dive you and in, throw you into 1984 there too, where it's just mm -hmm. like, what is reality? What is what am I what am I experiencing right now? You know, get basically take away take away your, the, the stability of the world you're yeah. inhabiting and make it just have it be yeah. Because that's, that, that's the other thing too. You know, not only do the studios need to understand it, but the director does too. Oh yeah, the director has to get it. Well, and I think that you run, you run into you run into some things where you can have a director come in and do. So, um, Artemis Fowl, okay? Mm. Artemis Fowl just came out. Yeah. And it was a... Fan disappointment has been large. Yes, it has. And it's a film that is, a lot of people have been waiting for for a long, long time. And Kenneth Branagh directed it. And they talked to him. They asked him, you know, about the story. And one of the things he said was he wanted to give audiences a reason to care about this young man, who people who hadn't read the book, to care about this young man before you go down the path of him being a child supervillain. Yeah. The problem is, is that along the way, 
the people who actually show up to watch the movie because they read the books are getting nothing of what they want. Yeah. And for all the fact that the trailer looks great and there's all these things, and I have not read the books, but I read enough of I read enough of the synopsis of the book to know what they're about. And even I could tell from the trailer, what are we doing here? Yeah. And I mean there's just it's it's a series that's dead in the water. I mean it's it's another one where here's the thing, fans are incredibly excited. It's one movie and it's you're gonna wait another God only knows how long before somebody else picks it up to get it right. And I think that it's the same thing with The Golden Compass. We got a movie version, mm -hmm. a hugely popular series. Um, there was a movie version, which... Mm, faithful to a point. Didn't see it. And then yet that you have the British series, which is like people are going, you know... Which is a much slower piece. It's a much more involved piece because you've got more time. You've got more time, and it's yeah. and it's and it's another one where the universe that it inhabits, the Dark Materials universe, is dense. There's yeah. so much information there because you have to understand an alt. It's an alternate history with an alternate church and an alternate politics structure, and all these things that play together to make the series work. Yeah. And that's tough to do in in two hours or two and a half hours. Sam says the movie was disappointing. It was a great cast too. I mean, and um, there's a there's a visual texture to the movie which is actually quite interesting, but the miniseries is much closer to what the material, the the written material is. Yeah. Um, but it also it's a huge risk. It's a huge risk when you're adapting because it's one thing. The Harry Potter movies are an example of a successful way to make it work, right? So you've got two. You're basically adapting fairly thick books and thicker as they go on yeah. um, into a two-hour movie. But in many ways, a lot of that stuff is you strip away the description of the world and you can get into do it. You have yeah. visuals of the world. So you can gain some, some ground there, but it's a challenge. And I'm excited about some of this stuff. I mean, Dune, Dune has got, I, I, want, I want a trailer. Yeah, that'll, that'll, that'll help. Because I want to see, I want to see the scale. Mm. The stills are nice. I'm, I'm, I'm like, okay, that's, that's okay, interesting, cool, cool. But show me the Sadakar. Show me the, show me the, uh, the guild navigators. Give me a sandworm. Mm. Give me a sandworm, um, and give me, you know, that sense of scale in, in, because it's, it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be Lawrence of Arabia meets Star Wars meets Beetlejuice Beetlejuice yeah <laughs> I mean it's it's and and with with uh, uh, the French connection um, uh, and then it needs to have uh, every political thriller uh, since the end of the Cold War, Cold War to now it, there are there are a lot of expectations of this thing it's got a lot to live up to it does speaking of time and risk mm -hmm. uh, we've gone longer and I'm having um, I'm I'm risking getting bashed in the head tonight by a pumpkin so uh, so we are going to call it a night dodge uh, uh, step to the left yeah <laughs> <laughs> Instead of running straight forward, <laughs> yeah, as yeah. it comes down, pretty much, right. yes. yeah. So, all right, so that's going to do it for us tonight. Thanks very much, uh, everybody, for watching. Um, and uh, with the demise of the Indiegogo campaign, we will uh, mention our 
Subscribestar account, which is also uh, something that we've done along with our superhero stuff. <laughs> Discount, uh, uh, Sci-Fi for Me 10. Um, so that, those two things there. Subscribestar, you can support us financially if you want. Uh, certainly not an obligation. And uh, for those of you who are new to the channel, uh, feel free to subscribe. We do invite you to subscribe. Get your notifications turned on. We are over 1,400 subscribers on YouTube. And now that we're not building our own channel at this point, this is it. This is where this is where we're going to build this thing for a while. Uh, we've, we've closed the Twitch channel for now, at least. And and so now it, this is where you find us. Right. So uh, tell your friends, tell your enemies, tell your tell your family, anybody that you know that's interested in this stuff. Share us with your friends and inflict us on your enemies. That's right. All right. And that's going to do it for us tonight. We will be back with another H2O podcast next week. Goodbye. Copyright 2020 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media.